0: Well, good morning and uh, happy new year. Welcome to uh, Christ Community Leewood campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we do want to greet you this morning. I hope you had a a great happy new year. I had a strange thing happen to me on New Year's Day. Uh, My wife and I were in Cleveland, actually, in between after Christmas and New Year's Day, and we got back, and I was driving down State Line Road. Um, And uh, I came to a busy intersection. I don't know if you saw this person, (laughs) but all of a sudden there was this young lady in the intersection with a big cardboard sign, and uh, I was curious, so I had to read it, and the sign read, did you think you'd still be here in 2013? <laughs> I was like, man, I've heard about the fiscal cliff and the Mayan calendar, but good grief. I have no idea what she meant by all that. I suppose it's a bunch of hype, but I'm still trying to figure out. If I was so introverted, I'd have stopped the car and asked her a question. I just, I couldn't do it. But I don't know about 2013. For me, I don't know what she's thinking, but I think 2013 is going to be a good year. And I'm very hopeful for it. It's not that the world's not a mess. It's just that there's a big God in charge. Amen? And uh, one of the things I'm most excited about, and all our staff are and our leaders, is to open God's Word with you this year. One of the things I was so encouraged about over the break is over 1,000 people so far have signed up in our congregation to join in this reading. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that as well. So we're going to, this year, uh, look at the whole Bible. um, And uh, we're going to begin, uh, sounds right, on the first Sunday in January, right? Where the Bible begins. But uh, before we do, let's have a brief word of prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. And just listening to it read, we recognize what a treasure it is. I thank you, Lord, for each person here. And uh, I do pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And especially, Lord, I pray that we would have a greater sensitivity to our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing such persecution because they love you. Lord, grant them peace and comfort, and we pray for the persecuted church. May we be faithful to uphold our brothers in prayer this year, and sisters, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are newer to Christ's community, you probably uh, are surprised, and if you're not, you're probably not surprised that on Christmas Day... After a wonderful Christmas Eve, Liz and I made our way to the theaters, along with some dear friends, to see the great movie on its opening day, Les Mis. And I'm sure none of you did that, as, you know. But we arrived early and uh, got in our seats and uh, waited for every moment of the movie from beginning to end. Now, you know I'm not a very good movie critic because I think Napoleon Dynamite should have got an Oscar. <laughs> But I think Les Mis has some candidates, and it is a top-notch movie, and it is stunning. Now, Victor Hugo's classic work, and the movie shows us up close, resonates with all of us uh, in many deep ways. There is something about this story that captures our hearts. And as the writing writing of uh, Victor Hugo is that there is a world we long to see. There are rumors of another world. And we sense in watching the movie or seeing it live, in one of the classic masterpieces of English literature, is we sense that we were made for much more. And there's something that grabs us. Because hardwired within us are rumors of another world. C.S. Lewis, the great and brilliant Oxford literary critic and writer puts it this way in his weight of glory. I commend this book to you. He says, For they are not the thing itself, as he talks about the rumors of the world, another world. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. All of us here, regardless of our spiritual journey, desire things. As human beings, we are desiring creatures. And the question for us in those moments of reflection is where do these deep longings come from? But not only that, where do they point us to? Now, from the opening chapters of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the closing chapters of Revelation, there is a sense that we listen carefully in the words, and between the lines, and we hear the distant rumblings of the rumors of another world. As we open the Bible this year, we will continue to hear these rumors that our hearts long to hear. Rumors of a life as it once was, rumors of a life as it ought to be, rumors of a life as it one day will be. And what we are going to discover repeatedly in this journey this year is that you and I were made for much, much more. Now, if you brought your Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And if you didn't bring it, I encourage you to bring an electronic device this year or a paper copy if you're old school like me. Um, and we are going to begin to look through the scriptural text in a way that I hope is powerful for you. So I'd like you to turn. Genesis is not hard to find, right? In the Bible, it's the first book. So that's one of the easiest ones. Wait till later, y'all. It's going to be hard to find it. But the, f- the name of the book is important right away. As we open there, it says Genesis, right, in English. The word Genesis comes from the Hebrew word barashith, and it means beginnings. The very first word of the Hebrew Bible, it was the original language it was written in in the Old Testament, the first word you see is barashith. It means beginnings, and the question is, what does it mean to begin? Genesis in English means beginnings, but the beginnings of what, Right? Well, really, there are two ideas of which we need to grasp right away in the story, that this is the beginnings of the great story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But it is also the beginnings of a rescued people, the people of Israel, the covenant people of God. So this word beginning serves two purposes in the literary trajectory of the whole Bible. One is to give us the beginnings of the whole story, right, that we're going to look at this year. It's going to be awesome. But also, embedded in Genesis, the foundational book of Torah, the instruction, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis is the foundation of that particular trajectory of the story of God's rescued people. So Moses wrote these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the beginning of God's covenant people's story. And the word Torah or Pentateuch means instruction. Torah means instruction. Pentateuch is five. And what is Moses trying to instruct God's covenant people about? Yes, their origins for sure. But also he is instructing them as they leave Egypt, as they leave pagan Egypt, to go to pagan Cana in the promised land. He's instructing them about who the creator God is and what it means to serve him. So when we open this text, we understand that the prologue, the foundation of the story is hugely important. It is the beginnings. Like all stories, the beginning is hugely important in multiple ways, but let's just say it sets the backdrop of the whole story, right? Like the beginning of a movie or or the first part of a book. And it also, and we must not miss this, it introduces us to the main character of the story, and I want you to tuck that into your mind and heart this year. The main character of the greatest story ever told is God himself. So, how do we understand Genesis 1 through 3? Genesis 1 through 3 is the beginnings of the story. What I'd like to suggest for your thoughtful reflection is the way to begin to enter this story. Genesis 1 through 3 has two big ideas. The first idea is that there was a time when it all began. There was a time when it all began. The second big idea of Genesis 1 through 3 is there was a time when it all went wrong. So if you're following the flow of this morning's message, that is the way I want to go. First, there was a time when it all began. This is chapter 1 and 2. When you look at chapter 1 that we heard beautifully read this morning, you will notice a threefold progression. All the way to the Scripture, there's just all kinds of threes. Very important because they echo the triune God. Genesis 1 is brilliantly laid out in a threefold progression. First is creation prologue, then creation progression, and then creation crescendo. Prologue, progression, and crescendo. Let's look at the prologue, verses 1 through 2. Let me read this again, and listen carefully. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So much is packed in this prologue. It is stunning. But what we want to see as we enter this story is that chaos moves to creation. But it doesn't do it on its own accord. What we notice in the text is in the beginning, God. So what we see in the prologue is God is the main character. Why is this so important? Well, in the cultural context which Moses wrote this book, the worlds around it from Egypt to Mesopotamia, if you've studied ancient history, was filled with a polytheistic view of the world. There were many, many gods. So this prologue is in stark contrast to any other kind of creation story of all of antiquity. It stands out in stark contrast in its structure and its meaning. We don't want to miss this as thoughtful readers. The prologue of Genesis does not affirm a polytheistic view of the world, but rather monotheism. In other words, the main character, this is not the kind of English we use, but it's the Hebrew, is the God. In the beginning, the God. Okay, I don't want us to gloss over that. And what does this prologue say about the God? Three things very quickly. Bedrock truths. First, God is outside of time. In the beginning, God. So the structure of the Hebrew language says the beginning was not the beginning for God. And that's important to understand about his eternality. Okay? God is outside of time. Secondly, God is the unique creator. If you look at your English text, it says, in the beginning, God created. This little verb in Hebrew, created, translated in English, created, is only used of God as its subject throughout all of the Old Testament. Why is that important? That is so important because humans cannot create like this. That God, the one true God, is a unique creator because he can create something out of nothing. That's what it's saying. Just in the first few words. But third, notice, he is the creator of all things. Do you see this little text? The heavens and earth. It's a literary structure of the ancient language to describe two poles of things, heaven and earth, And the idea is everything in between. We would say something like this. Uh, It's, uh, you know, like the whole kitchen sink, including the kitchen sink. That's exactly what the Hebrew writer says. Everything, and the New Testament will highlight that Christ, in all things, everything will be created through him. So it's all things. Now, notice also, again, some of you say, wow, you know, there's a lot in there. (laughs) There is. But notice there's not an apologetic or a defense for God's existence. Do you see it? I mean, if I were writing the story, I'd, I'd do an extensive, say, how do you know there's a God? will not you? Now, is the Genesis writer sort of being evasive? Is he sort of not being intellectually honest? No, no, no. The language suggests that God's existence is self-evident. By what is? In the beginning, there is more than just a really big bang. There is a really big God. And that's the prologue, a lot packed in there. From the prologue, we move to this progression, and it's a brilliant progression, where this great God is now actively at work in creating his masterpiece. So let's walk through a little bit of verses 3 through 25. Notice this. I want you to notice the beauty of this structure, because we have in the original language the idea of a mixed genre or structure, of poetry and narrative, poetry and historical narrative wrapped together. It's a rather unique structure in all of the Bible. And why do I say that? Because it is beautifully arranged, not only to inform us of what is truth, but to inspire us with the truth. It is arranged to inspire us. Now, how is it arranged? You will notice and you heard it is arranged around seven, the perfect number, Right? of wholeness, of seven sequential days. And you'll notice the repetition of the word day. You go, whoa, what does that mean? Right? This idea of day can be 24 hours in the Hebrew text and in English. Or we say, the day I came home from college or the day I finished school is a particular 24-hour day. Or the day we were married, that's a 24-hour day. But the Hebrew language also has the idea, this word, a day of a longer period of time like an age. We use this language in English, which is kind of fun, isn't it? We use it the day when the chiefs were really good or the royals were really good, right? We're hopeful for another day. Maybe it's just around the corner. Now, how do we understand this day? Let me just be very transparent. I tend to read this day from a Hebrew standpoint as a shorter time frame, I think it best represents the flow and structure of the Hebrew text, 24 hours. But because of current science and all the empirical evidence that seems to be building for longer periods of time, I just sort of live with tension. Is that okay? With all respect. But let me say very quickly, for those of you who are sort of jumping ahead of me, what is not compatible with the Hebrew text is an atheistic assumption of unguided evolutionary processes from nothing to something that is incompatible with the Genesis text, that somehow nothing came from something. So a Big Bang and a Big God are not mutually exclusive. I love Robert Jastrow. He was one of the most refreshing astronomers of his day. And I love his story because he talks about the tensions science and theology has, and he describes scientists this way. He's says, scientist, and he's one of them, a brilliant one. He said, scientists are climbing the highest peak of knowledge. I love this part. And as scientists, he says, pull, they pull themselves over the final rock of human knowledge. They are greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> and what I'm saying is science is very important to human knowledge. The biblical worldview births science in a rational world. We are pro-science as Christians. But we must remember that other true ways of knowing are also important. And when it comes to the theory of origins, all are built on faith assumptions, every one of them. We all entered into a great deal of delicious mystery, don't we? And I hope humility. But what we see here in Genesis 1 is God's intelligent, ordered, beautiful design. That's what we see. You'll notice the many patterns. Did you hear it when it was read? The intentional patterns of God meticulously designing his creation as an artist. Notice, again, threefold, everything is three for a reason. Notice the repetition. First, in the text, you can sing in English, and God said. See that? And God said. And God said. And God said. Why? Well, God's spoken word is a picture of his absolute power and authority over everything. It's a picture of his power. But not only his power is mentioned, notice the repetition, not only God said, but God called, see that? And God called, and God called. In other words, this is naming rights. This is more naming rights than a stadium. The idea here is that when you name something, you have rightful authority, Right? Kids, you present a paper at school, you write the paper, it's your intellectual property, you might not want to admit it, uh, but you hand in a paper at school and you put your name on it and you can name it. Right? If I came up to you said, let me name your paper, you go, who are you? Why? Because when you create something, you have the right to name it and you own it. That's true of a work of art. That's what Genesis is saying. God calls it because he owns it. He has all the authority to name creation. But don't miss the last part. And God saw, you see that? And God called. But notice where this text goes. And God saw that it was good. After every day of creation, you see this word, good, 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 good. And then when the day six hits, very good. God is delighting in his creation. It's as if God steps back from creation. I just love this. Imagine this, what we know about God. He steps back, looks at his creation, and goes, wow, I outdid myself. It's like God gives himself a standing ovation. I don't know how God does this. But it's standing ovation good. That's the idea. He is delighting in his work. This is awesome, God is saying to himself. Now, I guess God has a right to brag. I don't think he's bragging. I think he's delighting. I mean, God can brag, right? I mean, if you created the universe, I think you'd brag too. But he's delighting. Now, step back with me for a moment. Have you ever made something or, you know, a really beautiful meal Created or crafted a beautiful garden? Built something really beautiful? Or created a beautiful piece of poetry or music? And you step back and you go, yeah. Now you go, wow. This past summer, you know, this is a stretch, I know. It's the best I could do because I can't make anything. <laughs> okay, I, I worked hard on this illustration. I couldn't find one, but here's it, here it is. Pastors do that, you know. <clears throat> I had to sort of redo my deck. I didn't rebuild it. I couldn't do that. But I rebuilt parts of it and restained it. Our deck, if you don't, I was embarrassed how bad our deck looked. But when I got done, and it took me a long time, I, okay, I, just, I walked around it like this. I go, gosh, that looks good. You know, and if you were an expert at carpet, you'd say, no, it doesn't look good, but it would look good to me. I was glowing in my work. And this is sort of what God is doing. The text of Genesis, don't miss the afterglow of God. God is the main character, dear friends. It is not us. He is just glowing in an afterglow of his masterpiece. That's the Hebrew picture. God does not talk about himself or his work here. Do you notice that? I mean, if I were God, I would put that in the text. God, look at me. Uh-uh. Why? Because his brilliant works proclaim it in a burst of praise. As the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? God speaks all over Genesis 1 without speaking until he gets to man. I love that. The more we learn about the intricacies of inner space and outer space and the massive beauty of God's creation, the more in awe we are. One of the things I love to study is astronomy. And one of the places I love to go are planetariums and natural history museums. And one of the finest in the country is Adler in Chicago. I remember being there not too long ago and above this extraordinary display of the nursery of stars, (laughs) it just blows my mind, there is 18th century Immanuel Kant that German philosopher I know you've been reading in your quiet time. (laughs) His words are over this picture. And the words of Immanuel Kant are these. Two things astound me most, the sky above me and the moral law within me. Whether Kant knew it or not, he was echoing Genesis 1. And notice he emphasizes in awe of who he was made in the image of. Because the moral law within us, as Lewis tells us, speaks of the moral lawgiver. Notice now how Genesis 1 builds to the crescendo. Do you see that? Creation's crescendo, the crown of creation, is us. Look at 26 to 28. Then God said... Notice the interaction. Let us make man in our image. It's the first time he breaks. There's any conversation here in all that mystery. After our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. Wow, day six was a big day for God and for us. God is saying, notice the change of language. This is not only good, this is awesome. Why would God gush over us when he doesn't gush over the rest of creation? I mean, if I were God, I would gush over the vastness of the universe. Why us? Well, several distinct design threads emerge in verses 26 to 28. Notice, unlike all other creation, humankind is created in God's image and likeness. Notice the repetition there. Three times in verses 26 to 28, the word created and the word image are brought together in a beautiful poetic symmetry. What does image mean? It means a pattern of similarity. We have this in our English language that when we look at a child, a son or a daughter, and we say, they are in a spitting image of mom and dad. They look like them, right? They're like a little mom or dad. They have manners, they have a sense of humor, (laughs) likes and dislikes. This is the picture. See, being made in God's image does not mean we are little gods or ever be little gods. Not at all but rather that we were created in a way that is distinct from all other creation. To be like God, to relate to God, to serve Him uniquely. Think about this. Unlike all of the rest of the creation, hardwired within us is a spiritual nature. Wow. There is unique intellect, personality, curiosity, conscience, morality. We could go all the way through that list. Notice here in verse 26, if you have your Bible open, that after asserting we are made in God's image or pattern, now the Genesis writer points to the purpose of that pattern, the divine plan. In other words, how we were designed allowed us to have a unique capacity within creation and a unique responsibility for creation. Do you see it? We are created to exercise dominion. That's a kind of a strange word. What that means is supervisory responsibility, kind of like being a boss in a company. You're not the owner, the stockholders are, but you have supervisory stewardship. That's the picture. That we were created to be supervisors of what God cares about most all of creation. And we were designed to do it. Notice verse 27. Verse 27 tells us that part of God's original design was to reflect his image with two separate but complementary genders, male and female. For the Genesis writer, gender is not a social construct. It is embedded in a timeless cultural or timeless creation design. Both genders uniquely and complementary reflect God's character, and you'll notice that it fits in the context of the literature to show that the the one who bears the image of God will bear children, emphasized in verses 28. So the bedrock truth we have is we have been made in God's image is really a big deal. It's a big deal in our lives, how we see ethics, and how we see our world. How many here are excited about tonight? What happens tonight? Downton Abbey's third season from here. I've got hooked on it. I'm sorry. I know a lot of you have because i heard about it. But one thing I think we love about this story uh, (laughs) of uh, these early 20th, 20th century aristocrats in England is all the wealth and all the, you know, amazing stuff of being in that era of a class, and we watch it. But I want to suggest, no matter if you're a Downton Abbey fan or not, that your worth is not based on how much wealth you have, how much social class you have, what you wear, how popular you are in school or at work, how much you've accomplished. Your worth is based on who made you. And the image you reflect. Embedded in creation is the inherent worth and sanctity of every human life, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, born and unborn. So if you are struggling with your self image today, anybody struggle with their self image? There are times I do. If other kids at school seem smarter than you, better looking, more talented, more popular than you, or moms, if your kids aren't as perfect as your friends' kids are, or if your company is not reaching the numbers your competitor is, can I encourage you to get back to Genesis 1 and anchor your life there? You are created in God's image. You are the greatest masterpiece this world has ever known. Our distinct design is further elaborated in Genesis chapter 2. Let me highlight a little bit of it, how 1 and 2 connect together. And and Andy Crouch, who will be coming to our conference in April, which I don't want you to miss, CG 2013, in his book, Culture Making, describes the relationship between chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he does it really well. He says, If Genesis 1 is the prologue, the grand scene setting vision of the goodness of God's creativity and central place of his image bearers in the whole process, then Genesis 2 is where the story properly begins, again, as it relates to us. So in Genesis 2, as you read it and look at it, you will see several things. First, we encounter the first historical people, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.15, then, we see Adam being brought into the garden to work, that he was created with work in mind to cultivate and protect creation. In 2.18, if you look at that text, you will notice that Adam's aloneness is highlighted. God's amazing provision of Eve is featured. And Eve is her role as an equal yet distinct complementary helper in accomplishing first the work Adam is called to do, emerges as a timeless design of creation and lays the backdrop for heterosexual marriage in verse 24. This is the integrity of the text. So what a beautiful picture we have of God's design. Harmony, beauty, creativity, work, intimacy. This is the world we were created for. This is God's design. We feel the loss We hear the rumors of another world when we hold a newborn child in our hand as I held our newest member, Liam, just the other day. He was just born. We see it in a sunset. We hear it when we hear Handel's Messiah. Rumors of another world that we were created for. But this is not the world we live in. Something has gone terribly wrong. No one says this better than Fontaine and Lemez and in I Dream the Dream. Anne Hathaway is brilliant in the movie here. I think she's going to get an, uh, an award. Fontaine, as you know, the story in Lemes is at the bottom of the barrel of life. The bottom of the barrel. The black hole of despair. In the anguish of her heart, she laments. And in the song, she says, there was a time when it all went wrong. And that's Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we are introduced right away to the evil villain of the story. We're going to see more of him throughout the text. He is described here as the serpent. We'll learn later he is called Satan. He is very powerful in this invisible cosmic war. He opposes God at every turn. The serpent is the master of deception. He is hell-bent on getting us to disobey God. And he gets Adam and Eve to do that, doesn't he? And they plunge into this cosmic conspiracy. In Genesis 3, 4 through 5, what we see here is that Satan, the serpent, gives a bull faced lie. A bull faced lie. The serpent says to the woman, verse 4, you will not die. Surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In chapter 3, Eve takes the bait, doesn't she? And she disobeys God and Adam just willingly goes along with it. And the act of disobedience and deception are beyond description to us. As Adam and Eve plunge into spiritual death, depravity, and they take all of creation with them in a downward spiral. From innocence to depravity. Genesis 3 is the nightmare of nightmares. No movie can capture that. No story can capture it. They engage in this blame game, right? They feel shame. All of creation is radically altered. They try to scramble and hide from God. You know the story. It's a brutal story. What Genesis 3 is, you see, it's like the scorched remnants of a battlefield of World War I. That's the picture a sin scarred planet, sin ravaged people. And what we see early on in the story is this truth disobedience to God has and always will have the most dire consequences. Genesis 3 is a dark chapter, but in it we find the hint of a third idea, an idea we didn't see until 3. And that is, there was a time when it all began, there was a time when it all went wrong, and there will be a time when it will be all right again. In verse 15, you will notice a hint of hope. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea here is that one will one day come who will strike a mortal blow to Satan, the serpent. And as the Bible ends, this one is exalted and says, I'm going to make all things new. So 2013 is the beginning. It's the beginning of a new year, which I hope you don't feel as apocalyptic at this point. And it's the beginning of our series. I'm not one for resolutions, New Year's resolutions. I hope that this make you want to leave. But I am for New Year reflection. And can I ask a couple questions for your consideration in closing? As you think of 2013, can I ask you this question? Is your view of God too small? Perhaps we need to dwell in Genesis 1 and 2 again. Because if your view of God is too small, your problems are going to be way too big. We say we believe in God, don't we? But we live as practical atheists. Think about this. If God created the universe, let's be confident he can handle the universe. That He can handle our lives and the challenges we face at school and at work and home and families and money. If God created all this, then you and I can trust Him to guide us, to provide for us, to help us in our studies, to give us wisdom at work, to help us in our relationships. If the Lord is our creator and our shepherd, we have no lack and we can trust Him. Can we trust God more? Can we worry less? Can we serve him with greater joy in 2013? That's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you. As we open this book, as we open here one story, one year, will you pray with me the prayer of Moses? Lord, show me your glory. Show me how great and awesome you are. And teach me how to live the life you've designed me to live. Les Mis has a wonderful ending. You know the hopeful finale. It brings tingles to my spine every time I hear it. Because Les Mis speaks at the end of rumors of another world. Somewhere there is a world beyond the barricade we long to see when tomorrow comes. Victor Hugo was right. We were made for so much more. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak into this moment, that while all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, that each one of us would recognize that you are not only our creator but our redeemer. And may we embrace you with humbleness of heart and repentance of sin and trusting faith. For if we say we do not have sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, you are faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, the one who created all things, who entered this world, who died for my sin in each one of us here, the one who was buried, raised from the dead, and will one day return, We trust you, we remember you, we celebrate your costly grace to us. In Jesus' name.